are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is episode 68 of Lighthearted, and it's scheduled to be released on June 29th, 2020. Born on June 29th, 1861, was Dr. William J. Mayo, co-founder of the Mayo Clinic. He once said, quote, science knows no country, unquote. So, Cindy, normally we'd be well into our open house season at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in Newcastle, New Hampshire by now. This year's a little different, of course. Most lighthouses are closed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the ones that aren't closed are operating with reduced numbers of visitors and other special guidelines in place. I miss our lighthouse, Cindy. So do I, and I know our volunteers really do too. Yeah, well, at least through the magic of this podcast and through the internet, we get to travel vicariously to lighthouses all over the place. Today we're traveling down to Florida to a lighthouse that may not be one of the best known ones in the state, but one that has some really interesting history. We'll be talking with Ralph Krugler, who is the historian for the Hillsboro Lighthouse Preservation Society. Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about Hillsboro Inlet Lighthouse. Sure, Jeremy. Hillsboro Inlet Lighthouse is about halfway between Fort Lauderdale and Boca Raton on the southeast coast of Florida, marking the northern limit of the Florida Reef, the third largest coral barrier reef system in the world. A lighthouse in the area was discussed as early as 1884 and was funded in the early 1900s. A skeletal lighthouse was constructed in 1907 with a second order Fresnel lens showing a flashing white light 136 feet above mean high water. The light was converted to electricity in 1932. The increase in power reportedly made the light the most powerful in the world for a time at 5.5 million candle power. For many years, the light station had a principal keeper and two assistant keepers living in three houses with their families. The station was fully automated in 1974 but one Coast Guard keeper remained at the station for some years. The assistant keeper's houses were used for Coast Guard housing. The Fresnel lens was taken out of operation in 1992 and a modern optic was mounted on the gallery railing. The lens had rotated on a mercury bed and 450 pounds of mercury were removed in 1995. Local citizens started a restoration campaign and the Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society was formed in 1997. The Fresnel lens was put back into operation in 1999, but just a month later the bearing system failed. A new system was designed and the lens went back into operation in August 2000. The Hillsboro Lighthouse Preservation Society opened a museum and information center in 2012. Access for tours is by water via shuttle boat at scheduled times. At the time we're recording this, tours are suspended until further notice due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Ralph Krugler is the historian for the Hillsboro Lighthouse Preservation Society. He has spent several years researching the history of the light station, its keepers, and related subjects, and he's put together an extensive book on the subject. 
Ralph is also doing research and data entry for the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog for the U.S. Lighthouse Society. He also has extensive experience working in the sports medicine industry and is a former member of the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary. He's also on the board of directors of both the Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society and the Florida Keys Reef Lights Foundation. I had the chance to speak with Ralph Krugler back in mid-May. Today we'll hear part one of a two-part interview. Let's listen to part one now. I am speaking with Ralph Krugler. Thank you so much for being with me today, Ralph. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate being here. And we are speaking on May 17th, 2020, although people will be hearing this a bit later. And uh, Ralph, you just told me it's a pretty warm day there in, in Florida. In fact, yep. hot even, you said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's in the uh, 80s and with the humidity, it feels like it's 96 degrees out there. Oh boy, yeah. So, yeah, so I took my dog for a nice walk so she won't bother us for a while. <laughs> okay, time. sounds good. So we're still in the uh, the age of social distancing and all that, although, uh, you know, like things are starting to open up. So how's how's that mm-hmm. going? Uh, well, Florida is really starting to open up, which is nice. We won't be able to do, I, I don't even know if we're going to be able to do a tour in June. We've had our uh, April and May tours, obviously, were shut down. We were fortunate with our big fundraiser uh, that we do every year in March that coincides with the first day of service. We just got that in under the wire. We had like 230 participants, and the cutoff was like 250. So we got that in, and then like two days later, they started to shut everything down. So mm-hmm. being that we're all you know all volunteers and everything we make goes into keeping the, the tower going, we we were lucky we, we pulled that off. But not having tours is really really cutting into our our funding right now. Sure. Well, that's pretty much the case for for all lighthouses. So people are True. people will be hearing this a little bit later in later June. So you know things will have changed to some degree by then. But you know, again, the season is pretty much up in the air for for most lighthouse organizations around the country. But before we finish up today, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. But I'd like to kind of go back to to the beginning, basically, for when you first got involved with the uh, Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society. If we could just start by by talking a little bit about how you got involved or when you got involved and how that happened in the first place. So how, how did you get involved? Well, when I moved down here in, in the 2002, 2003, I was really excited that there's a lighthouse right here. But with what I was doing at the time, I was always busy on Saturdays, and there's only like four. Actually, when I first got down here, there weren't really any tours, you know, maybe two a year. And I built up to four and gradually on and on. We're in a unique situation. So it was 2014 when I finally had the opportunity, and there was, I think, eight tours going on a year. I went out and got off the boat and walked right over to the tent where the volunteers sit and I introduced myself and I asked, you know, can I volunteer? And, you know, everybody's, you know, very nice and, you know, very welcoming, but everybody looks at you like, mm, yeah, okay, how long is this going to last? Because when people volunteer or say they want to volunteer, 99% of the time you never see them again. And I knew that I had to earn their trust. So I just did whatever I could and I started going to every tour that they offered and I started, you know, instead of just sitting around, I wanted to actually do something. I wanted to show them that I wanted to be 
a part of it. So I kind of made like little jobs for myself, like, you know, standing inside the lighthouse, counting people because we have to have a certain amount of people on the observation deck and, you know, keep people coming in going, keep the flow going, and little things like that to show them that I was really interested and wanted to do things with them. And then after a few months, when I was finally able to get to the very top of the tower, I really wanted to have all the information that I could have. So, you know, I've been reading Playhouse books for years, and I've tried to find everything I could on Hillsborough, but there wasn't really very much out there. So after that first time up at the top and people were asking questions and one little kid, he stumped me. I mean, he stumped me bad. Hmm. He said, before electricity, you know, how'd the light turn? I didn't know. Huh? And I'm like, I'm like, boy, this is really not what I want to do. I want to be able to answer all the questions. And so fortunately, uh, the historian at the time, Ed Castleberry, who was a giant and lighthouse preservation especially down here yeah uh, he, he he's getting on in years but he had created this little diagram and some talking points which are you know the kind of things you want to have for guests but it wasn't enough for me so i i asked him one stupid little question i said him what information do we have in the lighthouse and that one question led me to where i am today because he said, well, you know, I have all this stuff in our storage container and you can go there anytime you want and go through it and this and that. And so me and the president, Ken Herman, went out there because we wanted to clean up through some there and I wanted to get all the information out there I could. And he was a pack rat. He saved everything. So there were some really great things in there and something there's just like, why why is your phone bill in here, Hib? <laughs> so there's a lot of things you had to call through like geez. Okay. But there were some things in there, you know, like the names of the people who they bought the property from, um, different letters from senators, things like that. And then I came across some legal sized copy pages like had gone to the National Archives in the seventies. And he took photocopies of a bunch of different things. And when I came across these, I started looking at them. I, I couldn't read them. It was a you know, handwritten script. I was like, I hadn't read script handwriting in, I don't know, 20-some years. So it really took me a few minutes for my eyes to readjust. And once I did, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is an actual logbook. I didn't, again, I was such a rube. I didn't know that they kept logbooks at the time. And... When I saw this and I looked at the bottom of the page and I saw it was signed A. Burgell as an Alexander Burgell, the first keeper, and I looked at the dates, this was the very first day of service. And then, you know, through the first month, and then I was, I was hooked. I was instantly transported back in time. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm reading the first guy's words, thoughts, and what actually happened here. And I called him, like, hey, where are the rest of these? He's like, oh, I only, you know, Xerox a couple months worth. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this is great. And he's like, well, I only had a few quarters and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, so that uh, got me hooked up with um, Josh Liller, who's the historian and collections manager of Jupiter, yep. who referred me to Candace Clifford, who was kind of like leaving at the time because she was going to start working with you guys. And she hooked me up with another researcher. So then I started getting all the information that I could from the National Archives. You know, I was paying for her to go in there and just copy everything. And it was an instant addiction. And that brings me to where we are today. Wow. 
Hib uh, Castleberry I met, uh, I think, a couple of times, but uh, 20 years ago, at a, 21 years ago in 1999 at a conference in Key West, I met Hib, and he was he was quite a guy. So the uh, yeah. Hillsboro Inlet uh, Lighthouse uh, Preservation Society has been very lucky to have people like, like Hib and, and you involved uh, yeah. over the years. So if we could talk uh, about the history of the the light station for a while. First of all, why why was that lighthouse established in the first place? Well, it surprises me that there was not a lighthouse built here earlier because back in 1852, they proposed lighthouses be built at Jupiter and Ellsworth because from Cape Canaveral down to Miami, you know, Cape Florida, there was 170 miles of wilderness, no lights, no, no nothing there. Jupiter got theirs and it doesn't make any sense that we didn't get one here because there's three reefs that start here and go down to the Keys. You know, they're not continuous here in little sections, but there are three substantial size reefs. Plus, we have the Gulf Stream that comes the closest to the state right here. So when ships were sailing south, they had to hug the coast and they're hitting the reefs constantly. And I don't know why, but there were so many sinkings and just no action was taken until 1900 when the sinking of the Copenhagen happened right off our shores. Finally, the representative from Florida pushed through the, the legislation. He's like, you know, from Jupiter to Cape Canaveral, which was taken, I'm sorry, to Cape Florida, which was then succeeded by Fowey Rocks, the offshore light, you know, we still have 90 miles or so of unlit, you know, landscape here. And as you know, as you're sailing south, once you have one in the rear of the, the, the stern of the ship. You can't see anymore. You should be able to go to the bow of the ship, pick up the next one. Well, they weren't able to do that. So they couldn't really figure, you know, triangulate with their charts at night to see where they were, and they're still hitting reefs. So I don't know why it took so long. I cannot find that reason. But that's really what happened. You know, they finally, you know, took the Copenhagen going down. So they finally took some action on it. And uh, where was the tower actually constructed? I understand there's some confusion about whether it was displayed. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, there's conflicting information about that. Was it displayed at the Great St. Louis Exposition of 1904 before it went into service or not? Because <laughs> my laugh kind of set off the answer to that one. <laughs> yeah, maybe. There, I don't know where that came from. There are so many myths out there about where it came from and different things about it. Yeah, it just boggles my mind. It's you know, one of the things is well, it was made in Chicago, is you know shown at the St. Louis Expo. No, 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 no. The the bid for the actual building didn't go out until you know 1905. The expo was in 1904. Right. Well, <laughs> that answers that. Okay. In, yeah, it yeah. wasn't built in Chicago. It was built in Detroit at the Russell Wheel and Foundry. So where these other things came up from, I don't understand. Even you know, he had pursued this before me and he found a photograph taken at that expo that I think people were using and if you look at the upper sections it looks pretty similar but if you look lower you can see it has you know it's a wider base with a keepers dwelling inside it so it looked more like one of the offshore lights than ours so just if you compare the photographs you can see this wasn't a lighthouse so I have no idea where that whole story came from but that's one of those things that we've been trying to change and people keep arguing with us yeah and it's like i can show you paperwork and i'm like no 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 <laughs> yeah well what you want to yeah a lot of times you know somebody 
who knows when made made an error. Somebody said, "Oh, that looks like the Hillsborough Lighthouse," and maybe put it in print or whatever. Yeah. And you know, once it gets uh, in print once and gets repeat, starts getting repeated, it becomes, you know, fact and in, in yeah. quotes. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's hard to disprove once people start start believing it. But anyway, so there are quite a few uh, skeletal lighthouse towers in various parts of the country, mm -hmm. especially in Florida. But I understand mm -hmm. uh, that your lighthouse, Hills Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse, is one of only three surviving towers uh, with the same design. What, what's unusual about that tower? Well, um, the, the first one, the prototype, was actually built and put in Chicago, and they moved it to Wisconsin. And a lot of it isn't exact same because it was, you know, the prototype. But the ones that were really identical to ours, there's one in uh, Cape Charles, Virginia at 191 feet. Then there's one at Cape Fear, which was only 161 feet, and one in Hog Island, Virginia, which is also 191 feet. But both of those were demolished, unfortunately. Um this model is it's a center cylinder tower with an you know, internal staircase that winds around. The clockwork weight would descend through the center of that. And with, with one of the nice features of this is the way it was designed. You know, with technology, you know, things improve. And one of the questions we get is, why do you have this instead of a brick tower here? Well, this is designed for wind loads. So when the wind blows, you know, especially for storms and hurricanes, the windward side is a lean towards the leeward side, and the the tension rods on the windward side will tighten up, and the leeward side will slacken. So, it, and being an octagonal, it doesn't matter which side the wind's blowing from, it will it'll rock to whatever side it wants to, and it'll stay stable, you know, construction-wise, while it's you know rocking back and forth, and where we're located, if had they chosen a brick, it would have been way too heavy. It would have fallen into the sand and would have been demolished years ago. Whereas this, much lighter, and if they wanted to, they could always, because there's no rivets in it. It's all slotted and screwed together like a big erector set. They could take it apart and move it to another spot they wanted to. And why was it given a black and white color scheme? That was because of the location of where it was. The white would show off the vegetation, and the black would show off the sky. And then it stayed that way till either the late 69 or 70. There was Australian pines on the grounds, and they started growing too high. They started obscuring the white, so the middle section of the black was actually converted to white. Uh, let's talk about the lens a bit. I, I understand uh, Hillsboro uh, was supposed to get a, a first-order lens originally, but it got a second-order lens instead. Uh, do That's you know correct. why? Why did that happen? Part of that was because of timing and again technology. When William Craig, Craig, Craig Hill, for I mean, who was the District Seven Eight engineer who was tasked with getting the White House built and everything. He was, you know, we're going to build, you know, for a first order. So he ordered everything for a first order. And that was going to be the plan. But when it came time to purchase the property, it took so long. It took an extra year to purchase the property because the, pe the person who had the title was really a jerk. Let's just be blunt. He, he was a jerk. And, you know, I could tell stories upon stories about this guy. But it took an extra year to build the lighthouse. And in that time... Um, the second order clamshell 
lenses gotten really well built, really well designed, and it turned out the second order would be brighter than most first orders and would cost a lot less. And still, there was a, an old first order built in the 1880s that was in Staten Island in storage. And they're like, hey, you know, we have this first order. You're supposed to have a first order. Let's just you know, take it off our hands. And, and Craig Hill was like, no, it's not going to suit the purpose for what we need. I can get one cheaper and brighter. And so we wound up getting a second order. Let's talk for a while about the, the human history. Yeah, I love looking at your Instagram account, and uh, you're always posting interesting human interest stories on there. And uh, it's a lot of fun to look at. The photos you, you uh, post on there are amazing. <laughs> uh, we don't have time to talk about all the human history, uh, of course, at right. the station. There's, so, there's just so much of it. But let's uh, kind of talk about some of the highlights of that. First of all, you, okay. told, you told me that uh, the story of the first keeper would make a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you oh, say yeah. it would make a great movie? Well, in, in doing research, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the the early part of his life is unverified. And in order to verify it, I'd have to travel to Finland and to Russia and to Australia. And even then, I'm not sure I could verify it. So we were going off of things told by the grandson and you know, family lore. But really, you know, the crux of it is. Brigel was born in Finland at a time when it was, you know, dominated by Russia. From a really wealthy family, they owned a few homes. He was wanted to be on the ocean. Mother, father passed away at a young age. Mother wanted nothing to do with that. She wanted him to have a quote proper uh, profession, and he just didn't want anything to do with that. His older sister and her husband owned a ship. They would go back and forth to America. So. He, he convinced his mom to let her, let him, you know, take a trip. And she thought, okay, we'll see life at sea, how rough it is, and he'll get a system and we done. So he gets aboard. Immediately he leaves his cabin, goes below deck. And of course the crew looks, oh, owner's kid brother's here. What are we, why is this kid here? Is he a spy? Was he this? He's like, well, no, he wanted to work. So they, they put him to work and they made him a swab. And apparently he had a good attitude. And he worked hard and he wanted to learn and didn't give anybody any back talk, anything like that. He did what he was told. You know, they made him a swab. And by the time they came back, he had such a great time. He knew what he wanted to do. So the mom still objected, finally relented, said, if you're going to do it, then you're going to do it right. So he went to school, went to going to the Russian Naval Academy, graduates. And on the night of his graduation, there was a graduation ball. And he escorted a young lady to the ball. And Bergel, he was a man of honor. You know, name honor, your word meant everything, your name meant everything. A handshake was your bond. He was that kind of a person. And so a Russian naval officer said something negative about the lady he was dancing with. Well, Bergel didn't want her honor being slighted, so he defended her. He challenged this man to a duel. They agreed. They go outside. They duel. Bergel actually beat him with his sword. The story goes, he cut the epaulets, the Russian eagle epaulets off of the officer's uniform. They hit the ground, and that's a huge insult. So he got incensed, came out, and Bergel knocked him out, which was probably the shortest-lived excitement of his life because he knew as soon as that man hit the ground, his life was over. Huh. He was going to wind up going to a Siberian prison camp. Wow. He ran home. He literally ran home to his mom. <laughs> but there was a reason for it. His uncle was a senator, which was a lifetime 
hosting at that time. So she gets him to the uncle. The uncle gets him a passport, puts him on a ship for England. Before the sun rises, he never goes back. From there, he goes to England. Eventually, a couple of years later, when he's old enough, he gets his captain's license, goes around the world, has a bunch of adventures, gets sick, winds up in Australia, trying to recover, loses half of his hearing, decides he's going to go meet with some family in San Francisco. Supposedly, the the journey there wasn't easy. There was a fire aboard with a, a captain who was not a, a liked guy by the crew, crew revolted against him, yada, yada, yada. Bergel supposedly helps save the day. And one of the passengers was so grateful for his efforts in putting out the fire. When they got to San Francisco, he gave him his gold watch that he wore for the rest of his life. From there, he kind of bounced around. He was going to go back to Finland when a friend said, you know what, you should try the lighthouse service. <laughs> and so on a whim, he, he joins up, and next thing you know, he starts getting positions and actually got a write-up in a story that ran in New York. And that caught the eye of a young lady of a well-to-do family who hops on a ship, goes to Key West just to meet him. Well, lo and behold, a little bit later, they get married. And I'm leaving out so many details, huh. but you can see there's a basis here that this could make one heck of a story. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. It, it goes through his whole his whole service till what the the cause was that got him to quit the lighthouse service. It, it was one thing after another. This guy just led an incredible life. Yeah. That sounds uh, not only could it make a great movie, but a series. It <laughs> sounds like uh, you know Net Netflix should do something uh, based on this or something. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And what's his name again? How do you spell his last name? Uh, his full name is Samuel Alfred Alexander Bergell, but he went by Alfred, and the last name is B E R G H E L L. Uh, and also yeah. the second keeper, uh, Thomas Knight, was was yeah. interesting. Also, so could you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, Thomas Knight, he came from a long line of lighthouse keepers. His grandfather was Melville Cobb Burnham, and he ran Cape Canaveral Lighthouse, and his blood ran Cape Canaveral Lighthouse for about 80 years. And most, of, many of his descendants went into the lighthouse service, and one of Cap's brothers, you know, the black sheep of the family, was kind of like Bergell, you know, he, but he was not, you know, honor and duty and this and that he wanted to go you know see the world and so he ran away at a young age but knight started his career at canaveral from second assistant to first assistant and then when burdell decided to resign in 1911 knight got the promotion and came to hillsborough and and when i was doing the research for the book it was funny because i had josh Lillard giving me some of the um, research that he found out the, the personal side of different keepers, and he called Thomas Knight the oh the name's skipping you know the uh, oh he called him the Tom Brady of lighthouse keepers because he earned so many efficiency stars and so many commendations for lives sake. And when he was going through the records from the from the National Archives, there were so many people that he saved from you know ships and you know personal boats. And in the infancy of air air travel after World War One, if you had the money and the means, you could buy your own airplane and fly it. There's next to no regulations. At the time, seaplanes were a big thing, and they didn't really have gauges, so you had no idea how much fuel you had. So these things were literally falling out of the sky, and 
and sometimes in a lot of like, like two or three days in a row, he would be out there towing seaplanes in. And he got a lot of accommodations for that until the district inspector finally said, you know, enough is enough. And he got, he got ticked at him. He's like, you're wasting too much time saving, you know, these seaplanes. He's like, it's my job. And uh, he just kind of let him go. And he got accommodations for helping the Coast Guard because, you know, during Prohibition, there were smugglers and rum runners, and he was helping catch boats. And if he would find a, a boat with illegal booze, you know, he would let them know immediately, which is funny because Cap at the time had come, moved to the area to be close to the to his brother. And at the time, the Knights and there were a couple of the keepers and they had kids. The state of Florida said, if you had kids, you know, five kids, we have to provide you a teacher if if you request it. So Thomas turned his storehouse in the behind his cottage into a one-room schoolhouse. So he had teachers coming, and they would stay with him for the term, and then they would move on. But one of those teachers was a lady named Lola Saunders, who Cap fell in love with, even though he was like 40 years older than her. And they got married. She gave up teaching. And he had opened up a restaurant right in the area. And, you know, sounds all well and good, but Cap was also a rum runner. He would go to Bimini and load up on his booze and come back. And the legend is, well, you know, Thomas would be at the top of the tower and signal him when it was safe from revenues that he could come in because his restaurant was on a little peninsula not too far inland from where the lighthouse is. And, of course, that's unverified. But for all the, you know, the legalities that Thomas, you know, kept up in, you know, pristine and, you know, efficiency stars and the model of everything. And there's like, well, did he also help his rum running brother? More than likely, yes, but, you know, we're not going to hold that against him. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he was, he, he stayed at the White House until he retired in 36. And he was in the service for 34 years, almost 35 years. And it's funny because, I have his personnel file and I have his retirement papers. And if you see the photographs, the, the few photographs I have that I that I do get to publish, when he was done, he looked nothing like that. He was completely emaciated, and he, you know he had so many illnesses and you know arthritis and tremors, and no teeth left. And just, how did he continue to work as hard as he did year after year with all these crippling injuries? It, the man was just phenomenal at his job. And, you know, he's just one of those guys that he, I'm sure he would be like, oh, I'm just doing my job. He wouldn't think anything of it. But it's like what this guy put up with physically to do his job is mind boggling. It really is. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell me about Joe, the alligator. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were a lot of different pets and animals at Hillsboro over the years. And Benjamin Franklin Stone was one of our assistants in, he's another one. He's a character that you could write an entire book series on his life too. But well, fast forward to when he was the assist, first assistant at Cape Canaveral. For his wife to go get groceries, she would have to hop in the car, drive down a sandy, you know, not really a road, but to Cocoa Beach. It was, you know, I can't remember how many miles that was, but it was a long trip. And, on one of her trips back, she saw Joe, well, who became Joe, sitting in a pit on the side of the road, and her heart broke for this poor creature. So she goes back to the lighthouse. She tells her husband about it, and he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And she, like, she would not let up. <clears throat> she made him 
go back and rescue him. So he's like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to take Floyd Quarterman, the head keeper, with me. So they go, they rescue him, they and they want to bring him back to her surprise, nurse him to health, and you know, became part of the family. So you know, the kid named him Joe, and he, if, if you remember the, the TV show, The Beverly Hillbillies, Ellie mm-hmm. May had you know just critters everywhere. Sure, so that's kind of what they sounded like because they had gopher tortoises, raccoons, squirrels, you name it. They had them, you know, coming up and living as pets with them, and you know, just they they were in tune with nature. You know, really, really, you know, salt of the earth kind of people. So when Knight retired, having been at Hillsborough before. Stone jumped at the chance, and so they said, "Okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna bring Joe with. We're gonna let everything else go." So, load up the truck, loaded up the trailer, tied Joe to the trailer, brought him down, and made him his own pen. Well, okay, so what made it so special about that? Well, consider Joe was, I think, a twelve foot long alligator. That's kind of a interesting sight to see being towed down the street. You know, granted, <laughs> Florida at the time was still pretty rural in most places, but still, go through some, some of these towns, that had to be a pretty interesting sight to see an alligator strapped to the back of you know, the trailer. So, Joe got his own pen, and word got out pretty quick in the area, and next thing you know, people came from all over to see a real alligator. Well, all they had to do was go you know, a few miles inland to the Everglades. They could have seen him all over the place, but they decided to come to the lighthouse instead. <laughs> So Joe became a little bit of a celebrity, and after uh, Stone was retired due to health reasons, Joe went to an animal farm, animal farm and lived out his life there. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed at how many interesting stories there are connected to that that station. It's <laughs> and. And, I'm a, and you've uh, you've uncovered a lot of these stories your, yourself, right? I mean, Correct. Yeah, that's that's really that's really great. I commend you uh, for that. Again, for more information on Hillsborough Inlet Light Station and the Hillsborough Lighthouse Preservation Society, go to their website at hillsboroughlighthouse.org. Our thanks again to today's guest, historian Ralph Krugler. Part two of the two-part interview with Ralph will be posted this coming Wednesday, July 1st. And, of course, our thanks as always to all the staff, volunteers, and members of the United States Lighthouse Society at their headquarters in Hansville, Washington, across the country, and around the world. Be sure to check out uslhs.org to learn about all the many things the Society has to offer. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society or making a donation to help support the podcast. Please remember that every dollar helps and every donation of any size is sincerely appreciated. Thanks to everyone everywhere who works to preserve lighthouses or any kind of history. Keep up the good work and stay positive. We're all on the same team. If you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to rate and review us. And please help spread the word about Lighthearted. Share posts on social media and tell your friends. To our faithful listeners, thank you so much. I got some really nice emails from people who told me they binge listened to this podcast while staying at home during the pandemic. 
Those notes really mean a lot to me, thanks to everyone who wrote. You can always contact us by writing to jeremy at uslhs.org. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Thank you.